Okay, good evening everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us for our Thursday night Bible study. Uh, we're doing this a little different than normal. We, we've been meeting out at Stormgrove Middle School on Thursdays at 6.30, but uh, uh, this week we've just got some things happening with some folks. Uh, a person that I was uh, exposed to who uh, had COVID, and so I didn't want to risk tonight. Actually, tomorrow I'm free and clear, so uh, but I didn't want to risk it and, and possibly put someone else uh, in harm's way. So tonight, thank you for joining me live stream. We're all going to do live stream, and uh, it, it's just great to be together. And as always, so much to pray for in our church family. Uh, so many people who are facing trials and setbacks with uh, COVID and the things related to COVID. So uh, I want to begin tonight by praying for them. We also want to continue to pray for Haiti. We want to pray for Afghanistan, uh, the people that are there, the Americans, but also those who are supportive of our nation who are there. And uh, we want to also remember those who faced and are still facing the floodwaters of this Hurricane Ida. So let's go ahead and begin in prayer. Father, we come before you this evening giving thanks that you're in control of everything. We don't have a doubt that, God, you are providential in every way, and you are absolutely centered over all that's happening on the face of the earth. Nothing gets beyond you or beside you. Everything, Lord, is fully seen. In fact, it's so clear that, Father, you, in your immutability, you see all at the same time. You saw Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. You saw Christ coming and dying on the cross for our sins, and you see the second coming of the Lord uh, for his church. And so, Lord, all of that uh, you saw and you see at the same time. We're thankful that we serve a God who's greater than COVID, greater than the setbacks that, that uh, accompany a, a terrible pandemic. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust you in these days, that you call us to trust you, that you said those uh, who endure to the end will be saved, not meaning that uh, we would uh, work our way to salvation, but that truly the saved will endure. And so, Father, we're thankful that that promise that the Holy Spirit lives in us, he's the guarantee that we will be in heaven with you. And on this earth, he gives us the strength, he gives us the wisdom, he makes the word of God known to us so that we can live life productively and fruitfully in Jesus Christ. So we thank you tonight for all that you're doing and will continue to do in our lives. Be with those who are suffering. Be with those who have lost a loved one because of COVID or another related matter. Father, be with those who are just overwhelmed uh, emotionally or mentally, those who are struggling spiritually because of all that's going on. Father, every answer we need is in your word. And we thank you that your word comforts us in our time of trial. Your word strengthens us when we don't seem to know where to turn and which, which way to go. Thank you, Father, for navigating us through the word. And tonight, may the word of God speak to us clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to get started in chapter 10 tonight of 2 Samuel. We're going to cover chapter 10 and 11. Uh, I'm so thankful that last week, Scott Walker, one of our elders, did a tremendous job in chapter 9 covering the story of David and, and Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, 
Mephibosheth and the kindness that was paid to Mephibosheth. So tonight we're going to actually, uh, it's a continuation actually from chapter 9. In chapter 9, interestingly, you see David offering kindness to Saul's grandson, to the family of Jonathan. And all, all Mephibosheth had to do was receive it. He just had to say yes to it. He, he didn't have to uh, talk David into it. He didn't have to uh, do certain things to earn it. Uh, it was a, a, a free gift from the king to Mephibosheth. And what was the gift? Well, he gave him his, his grandfather's land, his grandfather's uh, possessions, even the servant family of King Saul that was still living came to Mephibosheth and served him for the rest of his life. He also allowed Mephibosheth to sit at the king's table and eat the king's food. So there was a place at David's table for Jonathan's son. What, a, what an act of kindness. And that's in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, we see another act of kindness that's granted by David to a pagan king. And we're going to see something here between chapter 9 and chapter 10. We see a, a bigger picture. It's not just a picture of the Old Testament narrative, but we see Jesus Christ, who God sends to us and offers to us free salvation a gift from God the Father through Christ the Son. We don't have to do anything to earn it. All we have to do is receive it. Receive it. Surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Receive our salvation. And we are saved. And, and yet, not everyone will receive it. And, and so, those who do receive the blessing of God. And those who don't, they receive the damnation of God. God judges them. And we see that here tonight, a picture of that in chapter 10. In chapter 10, we, it reads, After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal directly or loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. I want to stop and say that here is this pagan king that showed uh, 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 consideration to David when he was being chased by King Saul. And they must have entered some kind of an agreement, a covenant. And now David is repaying that covenant through his son. And, and so David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father's death. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So David shows this kindness, the same kindness that he shows to Mephibosheth. He now extends to a pagan king. But it's different. This pagan king doesn't receive it. He listens to the advisors in his, in his realm, and he goes against what he should do. He actually bows up against what David is doing. His spies, his, his advisors tell him that David's not sending his servants to bless you and lavish upon you a gift. They're coming that they might spy out the land so that they can do battle against us and defeat us. And unfortunately, the king listened to 
his advisors rather than receive this message from King David. Many in this world today, you think about this, Jesus went to the cross and he died for the sins of mankind. He paid the price so that man could be reconciled back to God. And yet, many never receive it. And so what's left for them is not a blessing, but a curse. They will be damned for all eternity by God the Father. That his wrath is against them because they're ungodly. They've rejected Jesus Christ the Son. And here we see the same thing happening. So David's kindness was not returned. The king did not want it. And now verse 3, But the prince of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Uh, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. <laughs> but they're not going to let convince the king of that. Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So because these men are untrustworthy, they are, they are projecting the same on David. He must be unworthy. He's untrustworthy. And so now they're telling the king, you can't trust this man. He's going to take over our kingdom. So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. So Hanun listened to the voice of these wicked advisors. They gave unwise counsel. And rather than receive David at face value, and I'm sure he knew that, he, that David and his father had some type of a covenant relationship, but he allowed these other men to speak into him fear. And so he took the servants of David and he shaved off half of their beards. And then he also cut their garments in the, at the mid-range, around the hip. He cut them off, exposing them in public. This was, this was a disgraceful insult to those ambassadors from Israel. In that culture, men would rather die than have their beard shaved off. You see, a beard was a mark of freedom. To shave the beard, that is a mark of slavery. And so these men now are shamed, and they don't know what to do about it. And then he cuts off one half of their garment, exposing them. It's not enough that they're, that they're naked from the waist down, and they're exposed in public, but the fact that these are circumcised men. It's making fun of the people of God. And so it's interesting what happens here. It's interesting that the way David responds to these servants, these ambassadors, when he learns of their situation, sh shows the heart of a great king. He doesn't use it for political ploy to march them out in front of the people and say, look what they did to our men. Now let's rally like in a Braveheart film and let's go take the enemy. No, no. He protects these ambassadors. He actually sends them to a faraway city and says, wait until your beards have fully grown again, and then you can return home. He did not want to shame them. He did not want to humiliate them further. He actually covered them. Is that not a picture of Jesus Christ, who when God found us in our sinfulness, we were naked, 
we were deprived and depraved of mind, and yet God finds us and gives us the righteousness of Jesus. He clothes us in righteousness so that our sin is no longer seen. It is gone. We've been redeemed through Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture. And the same principle is true with Jesus and his ambassadors. Jesus reminded his disciples, if the world hates you, remember, they hated me first. And so just as this king hated David, so he hated his men. You and I as ambassadors of Christ, when people reject you, when they laugh at you and mock you for your faith in Jesus, just know that you're in good company, that Jesus too was rejected, he was mocked, and he was ridiculed. It's the same for you, it's the same for him. You're in good company, amen, okay. Verse five, when it was told David, he sent to meet them. For the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. And when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, interesting, David did not reject them. They rejected David. They, they now know we have become a stench to David. We have made David angry. We did it. That's the same with you and I in our sinfulness. We are the ones that rejected God. We are the ones that mocked Jesus Christ until we were saved. And these men are now doing their own thing. It says the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of, Z of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with a thousand men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. So it's not enough to insult the king and his men. Now they know they've ticked him off, so now let's prepare for battle. And so the Ammonites did this to themselves. They brought down the wrath of God upon themselves. So to defend themselves against David, they hired mercenaries. They hired the Syrians to come alongside and fight with them. Uh, likewise, God has not rejected people. People have rejected God. And because of that, people have rallied together against God. We live in a world that has fallen, and it seems at every turn, no matter what you watch on TV or listen on a radio or just pay close attention to conversations at work or in the public square, people are against God. They're mounting their attack against God. We know that in the end, in the book of Revelation, the apocalypsis, the revealing is a great battle, the battle of Armageddon, where man actually thinks he can defeat God. Can you imagine that? And here we see them mounting up against David, who is God's representative. Not smart. Uh, this was a common practice, by the way, in the ancient world to actually hire other armies to fight with you in a battle. In 1 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 6, it tells us that the Ammonites paid a thousand talents to the Syrians for them to join in this battle. Verse 7, and when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And so David hears of this battle that they're mounting, and David sends Joab, his commander of his mighty men, and they go out to fight against the enemy. By the way, this is the first mention 
of David's mighty men. Never called that before. This is the very first time in the Old Testament. This was a group of men that formed a glorious fighting force for David. The army of mighty men. Remember now, these mighty men didn't start out mighty. <laughs> they were the opposite of mighty. They were actually disgraceful, uh, some of them. When they came to David in the cave of Adullam, uh, many were filled with distress. They were indebted up to their ears, and they were extremely discontent. They were depressed. And these are the men that David took in and began to work with them and lead them courageously. And these men gained confidence in their leader and they grew in strength and number. And now they're called the mighty men. But with the help of their leader, these men have changed and they're going out to battle. And one of these mighty men, let me give you just a couple examples of these mighty men, what they can do. One of them, his name was Adino the Enzite, E. Eznite, E-Z-N-I-T-E, and he was famous for killing 800 men at one time. That's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 8. Another was Joshabim, who killed 300 men at one time. That's recorded in 1 Chronicles 11.11. Another was Benaniah, who, who killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day and killed a huge Egyptian warrior with his own spear. First Chronicles chapter 11 verses 22 and 23. So these are mighty men. These are men who have great courage. These are men who have great faith in God and they have faith in their leader David. And the Ammonites came out, verse 8, and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob, and the men of Tob and Maka were by themselves in the open country. And when Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. And the rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. So he's got the the city walls of, of the Ammonites in front of him, and he sends all the other men in that direction. And then he's got the Syrians behind him, and he hand selects certain men who are great in might in battle, and they go out to fight. And then he says this, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So what Joab, this great military commander, does is he says, we're not going to retreat. You would think that if you had an army in front of you and one behind you, you would think the next thing to do is to uh, go ahead and surrender. Well, not Joab and not the, not the mighty men of God. These men then went aggressive. They went forward. They attacked. They attacked the front and they attacked the back. And whoever needs help, the others will come and join you. That's what he's saying to his men. So this is a great approach to the Ammonite city and how to fight against these in this battle. Uh, by the way, that's a great speech that Joab gave. If I can repeat that last verse, verse 12, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people 
and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So this is a great speech. First of all, be of good courage, and let us, it says, be courageous for the people. It actually means, let us be strong for the people. Courage and strength are not matters of feeling and circumstance. Uh, this is what I, it just irritates me to know in today to see leaders who are making decisions based upon feelings. You, when you're in battle, you're not focused on feelings. You're focused on the facts of the army that you're facing and the way that you might be able to defeat them. You are all about courage and strength, not feelings, not emotions. And, and so here's what he's doing. By matter of choice, especially when God is the one giving the strength, he chose to do battle. Let's fight. That's why we're here. We can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. So the first thing he did was he rallied his men to be of courage and to be strong in the Lord. Secondly, let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. Let us, let us be strong for them. Joab called them to remember all that they had to lose. If they lose this battle, their children will suffer. Their wives will suffer. The people of God will suffer. So they're being challenged to step up to the plate. Let's do the things that we have to do. Let's be courageous for the sake of the people and for the cities of our God. And, and thirdly, may the Lord do what seems good to him. I love that. We're going to do all that we can because God's the one giving us the courage and the strength. He's giving us the confidence to go to battle. He's given us the, the abilities that we have, the, the strength that we have. But honestly, when it all comes down to the end, God will do what God's going to do. It's in his hands. We have nothing to fear. Let's go forward with our God. And they did. Now in verse 13, it says, So Joab uh, and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the Ammonites thought that they had trapped uh, the Israel in the middle, having an army of the Syrians behind and the uh, Ammonites in, in front, and they thought they would probably surrender. They didn't. They were strengthened in the Lord. They fought the battle as they moved forward. It was the enemy who feared and who, who, who uh, retreated both the Syrians and the Ammonites. Look, let's read further. The Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shabak, the commander of the army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadazar uh, saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to him. So they start out in this battle, and they retreat, they gather up their resources, and they think, we can, let's go to battle, let's just get more men, then we can take on Israel. But something happens here, and I want you to see this, that when the Syrians ran, so did the Ammonites. But then both groups rallied. They found more people to fight, and they come back, and now they're ready to fight. And look what it says in verse 16, and Hadadezar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates, and they came to Helam with Shobach and the commander of the army of Hadadezar, 
at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And so now there's a second battle. The first one, the enemy ran. The second, they gather up more forces and show up thinking we'll intimidate, we'll beat them. But now David says, I'm going to join Joab and my mighty men. And I'm going to bring with me all the rest of Israel. And we will do battle. And so that's why they wiped them out. That's why they chased them and they defeated them. But defeat, but one defeat wasn't enough. Their pride got the best of them and they mounted the second attack. And David got involved. I want you to know that when you are going through a difficult time in life, when you're facing trials, you are not alone. Here David gets the report that they're going to mount a second attack. And immediately he shows up on the scene with more men. And they rout the enemy. In your life, when it seems like nothing is going right, in fact, you're defeated, my friend, God knows what's happening and God is mounting his attack. It might not be the kind of attack that you're looking for, but God will give you strength and he will give you courage and God, through God, you will overcome whatever you're facing in life. Stay true to God. Remain faithful to God and let God bring you through. This is a wonderful story. It's a wonderful opportunity for us to understand how our God works in our behalf. But quite honestly, it's really his own behalf that he does his work. God wants his name to be great, not ours. God wants everyone to know who he is. And only through faithful servants who face trials and adversities and setbacks, but who remain courageous and steadfast in their trust in God, only through those situations will God's name be great again. And so we have to remain strong. We have to remain committed. We have to stay faithful no matter what we face in life so that our Father can be glorified in our actions. That's chapter 11. The last thing I'll say about chapter 11 is they chased the Syrians, but they never did go to the city of the Ammonites, Reba. They did not go to Reba and take out the Ammonites in the city. They were facing them, but they retreated. And then they took off this on this other battle, this great battle, and they won a great victory. But in chapter 11, we now see that at a different time, after the winter, we see David sending his men to take the city of Reba that belongs to the Ammonites. And so let's go ahead, if we can, and look at this. This is very interesting. Uh, in the spring of the year, verse 1 of chapter 11, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. There it is. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, it was common in that time of history for armies to pull back in the winter months. Too cold, too difficult to get supplies to the forces. 
And so they would retreat. They would go back to their own cities and they would wait until the spring and then they would resume their, their battles. They would resume the war. And this was the case for Israel. They still had Reba, the Ammonite city, to overcome. And so when spring came, uh, David sent his men. What he should have done was go with them. Remember, we just learned in chapter 10 that when the enemy came back a second time with more forces, David himself went to the battlefield with more men. David needed to be with his mighty men. And because he was with them, they routed the enemy. Now it's spring, and David has chosen to stay in Jerusalem and send Joab and his men out to fight the battle. This is a mistake. This is a mistake. Uh, he did not heed the warning of God. It was God who compelled David in the last chapter to go to battle when things got tough. So why wouldn't David join them in finishing that job? as they came into the spring. Uh, I, I just want to say to you that uh, David, for all the good that he did, for a man who had a heart after God, yet David had some tremendous weaknesses. And these weaknesses plagued him all of his days. And tonight we're going to actually see this chapter, chapter 11, is one of the saddest and most sobering chapters in the life of David. And so let's continue to read if we can. I want you to know that uh, uh, David should have been with the, with the army. He stayed back. He was resting. He was relaxing. He let his guard down. And in doing so, it got him in a world of trouble. Um, You and I can be the same. We can go through life and maybe have a victory in God, and usually it's right off of a victory that Satan comes with a great attack. Or sometimes we can't even blame Satan. Sometimes after a great victory for the Lord, our pride rises up, and we begin to please the flesh rather than the spirit. And we find ourselves in a very... Uh, a, a, a difficult situation where we're tempted and, and oftentimes we give in to the temptation. This is what happened to David. But I want you to know something. Never is there a time when the enemy tempts us or when our flesh tempts us that we have to follow, that we have to fall in sin. Nowhere in scripture does it say that when you're tempted, you're not going to be able to stand. It does say that when you're tempted, God will give you a way out. That's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Let me read for you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you ever had somebody who's fallen and that you speak to them, how, how did that happen? Oh, if you only knew what was going on before and the pressure I was under and the weight and I was just overwhelmed and you, they try to draw this picture like nobody else could possibly understand what I'm going through and why I fell. Uh, it's common. Every temptation that we give into is common to all men. 
And this is the case. It says, it goes further, God, even though we're tempted, God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. No temptation has befallen you that's uncommon. And God is faithful. And he will give you what you need to escape from that temptation. That you may endure through it, the scripture says. The way of escape for David came both with a custom and with a decisive victory. Here he is in the spring and a temptation comes to him. And immediately, he had to remember the victory that he had in battle. He could have said, what am I doing here? He could have gotten up from where he was and gone straight to the battlefield where he should be. But also, not only that, God gave him victory when he was at the battlefield. And he should remember the victory of God. And if God gave him victory over a great enemy, God could give him victory over the temptation. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do you not gratify the desires of the flesh? By walking by the Spirit. Stop trying to fight the gratification of the flesh. That's a temptation battle you'll lose every time. The way you defeat it is by not thinking about it. Focus on the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Surrender fresh to the work of God. See, why did David fall? Why did David fall? Because he was walking by his flesh. He was not paying attention to what God had shown him in the victory of the battle that he fought in the, in the, in the fall. If David had his attention where God wanted it, he would have never found himself being tempted. And what was the temptation? Well, first and foremost, David decided in the spring when others were off to war, he decided to be a peeping Tom. This is the issue. This is what's happened in chapter 10. It says it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, you could say, well, you know, David saw this woman. She was beautiful, and that's where the problem began. No, it's not where the problem began. For David, the problem began 20 years earlier. David goes all the way back when he disregarded God's plan for marriage. One man for one woman for all of life. David went ahead and entered into polygamous relationships and David began to have many wives. This is when it started. He didn't just entertain a lustful thought seeing a woman bathing on a rooftop right then. No, he had already lived in his life numerous times and made it a lifestyle of giving in to his flesh, of letting lust take first place in his life. This is a sad story. But it's not, a, it's not an uncommon story. Men will try to convince uh, others that, well, you know, I was just in that one place at that time and I couldn't help it and, 
And I don't know why I gave in. I've never done that before. Hogwash. Hogwash. That's not the way sexual sin works. It starts with sin, you giving birth to sin. And then sin, when it's full grown, it brings destruction. For David, it was 20 years earlier that David opened the door to that sin, sexual sin. It happened late one afternoon. I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to think about this. First of all, let me ask this question. Why is this woman bathing on the rooftop? As we read further, we're going to see that her husband, Uriah, is actually one of the mighty men. He's out doing battle with Joab. So why would she go to the rooftop to bathe? You see, this is not just David. We also see Bathsheba, who is probably doing something she shouldn't be doing. And it's interesting. The culpability goes both ways. Her immodesty to be on her roof bathing, that's on her. But David is also guilty for giving a second look. You can't fault David for looking across the kingdom that now he is king of and seeing a woman bathing. If he didn't mean to see it, well, maybe he did. Maybe David went out on that veranda look, overlooking the city with the purpose of trying to find trouble. I don't know. It doesn't say that. So if David didn't go out there with a lustful heart and he just happened to see the woman, that's not sin. Sin is continuing to look. Sin is to see, look away, and then look a second time. Now you've entered into sin. The first look was simply temptation, not a sin. But David went further. And this woman, she too, going out on the, the roof and bathing on the roof, she's putting herself in a position where she's not being uh, modest. This is on both of them. Let's stop for a moment and let's recognize a great life lesson here. We must never be a person who gives an occasion for sin in others. Don't ever be that type of person who gives an occasion for sin in others. What am I talking about? I'm talking about what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. He said this, Women should adorn themselves in respectable attire. When we come to church on Sunday, it is very important that we dress in a modest way. We're not there to worship the human body. We're not there to become a, a lustful temptation to someone. We are there to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we should come to worship respecting our Heavenly Father, addressing appropriate for worship. And ladies, before you think I'm simply coming towards you, men, when we come to worship God, we come with our eyes forward looking at Jesus. He is the author and finisher of your faith. No woman can, can serve you well in that regard. No woman is going to replace your relationship with Jesus. Not even your wife. But when you come to church, you're coming to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
You're not there with your head on a swivel seeing who's dressed inappropriately or, or, or who's dressing in such a way that it allows you a temptation to sin. That's not what church is for. And, 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 and so godly women should hate sin, hate it enough that they would never wear something that might cause someone else to stumble. Godly men hate sin so that they would never do anything in such a way that would cause sin in another person. I have a personal practice that I don't travel uh, in a vehicle with another woman. I don't go to lunch. I don't go to dinner. I don't go to a breakfast with another woman. Now, if there are two people together with me or another person, another man, if there's two women and we're having a meeting, that's different. But to be one-on-one, -on -one, no, that's not going to happen. My wife knows that she can trust me with that, that I'm not going to let my guard down in that situation, and neither should you. That's how you, that's how you guard against the temptation of the flesh. That's how you guard. And you say, well, oh, you're that weak that you can't. No, it's not about weakness. It's about worship. I want God to know that I see sin the way he sees sin. I see it the way he sees it. And I want to honor him and obey him. Let's be clear. David's sin was not in seeing Bathsheba. It was in continuing to look at Bathsheba. Man, we need to learn to never let our eyes or our minds rest on an alluring image of some type. Men, let me ask you a question tonight. When was the last time you saw a woman in your home that wasn't your wife, that was dressed inappropriately? When's the last time? Some of you are right now saying, well, confidently, I've never, I would never do that. Do you ever watch TV? Do you watch those shows where women are dressed inappropriately? You see, friends, until we see sin the way God sees it, we can easily begin to succumb to tendencies and behaviors that only lead to sexual sin, that only lead to destruction and ruin. We need to be so careful with that. Uh, if I could give you an illustration, David... David, he, he sowed sin and he reaped a whirlwind. Even his son Solomon had, Solomon, I think it was 700 wives and 300 concubines, a thousand women. Here's a question I have. When you lust, do you really think that whatever you're lusting after is going to fulfill give you sexual fulfillment? It doesn't. If one woman's not enough, two won't be enough. If two aren't enough, ten won't be enough. If ten aren't enough, a hundred won't be enough. Solomon went all the way to, to a thousand. If he had more time before he really got right with God, he probably would have kept going. You see, that's all it does. Sin is a big lie. Lust is a lie. It never fulfills you. It only leads you to further and deeper sexual sin. We need to see this for what it is. The real strength of temptation often doesn't lie in the quality of the temptation object. The real strength of the temptation lies in the state of the heart. 
the state of your mind that would allow you to be tempted to begin with. We have to cut it off at the neck. We have to take the steps before we ever get to a temptation to not even let it get started. Had David made a covenant with God to only have one wife from the beginning, I promise you he wouldn't have been on a rooftop looking at Bathsheba. If he saw a woman bathing, he would have turned away because he, he was still faithful to his one wife. This is the covenant that we make, men, with God. So David looked at Bathsheba. He said she's beautiful. But God said, no, she's actually in baseless sin. She's not thinking straight to be out there bathing that way, and you're not thinking straight looking at her. The pleasures of sin deceive us like the bait that the bait that's hidden on a hook. I love the fish, and the way you catch a fish is you put bait over the hook. You cover it up. If it's a live bait, you're going to hook it through the nose or through the tail, and you're going to allow that bait to swim around. And the fish is not looking at the hook. It's looking at the fish, the bait. The same is true for us. The way you cut it off at the head is that you recognize, whether you see it or not, this is sinful. This will lead me down a path of destruction. Nothing good will come to me. Nothing good will come to my spouse. Nothing good will come to my children or to my church or my name in the name of the Lord. Nothing good comes from it. It ruins my witness for Jesus Christ. Until we see sin for what it really is, we're going to continue to struggle with temptation and oftentimes give in to it. We have to grow up as Christians. We have to trust the Holy Spirit. We have to know that if we will allow, God will give us a way of escape. Take the way of escape. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So right there again, God's saying, uh, David, let me remind you, this is a woman who has a husband. But instead of ending the temptation, instead of leaving the scene, instead of doing what was right, David chose to entertain the temptation for a while. So he put himself in a more tempting situation. He pressed in to learn that the woman came from a, no, a noble family. She was from the upper class. Her father was Eliam. Listen, Eliam, that's one of David's mighty men. That's a friend of David. God giving another way of escape. David's not paying attention. Her grandfather was Ahithophel. Ahithophel, another of David's chief counselors. David knows this family, and yet he continues to press in that he might be with this woman. He also learned that she was married to another of David's mighty men, Uriah. He took note that the woman's husband was away because the mighty men were away fighting in battle. And all of this information only served to make things more tempting than before. Now David's thinking, I can get away with this. You see, David has put time and energy thinking out a plan that he might fulfill this sexual desire with this woman. So sad. When did David commit adultery with Bathsheba? I'm going to tell you it was long before there was a physical intimacy. Jesus himself said, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. David started committing adultery 
20 years earlier. And it only got worse. And friends, believe me when I say, it cost him and it cost his family and it cost Israel and it cost the reputation of God greatly. It did. Verse four, so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him. Don't think that this is just David who was doing all the weaseling and all the craftiness. No, this woman was on a rooftop bathing. She should have been inside of her home. She's now coming to him. She was not forced. David did not command her. No, David sent for her, but she willingly came along and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. The reason that is in the text is because she gets pregnant from being with David. Okay, this is proof of that. Then she returned to her house. So the man after God's own heart went against that very heart and he followed his lustful impulse. He ignored every warning and God gave so many warnings to David. That's, that's the love of our father for us. He knows that we are clothed in flesh and blood. He knows that we are tempted every day to sin in various ways. And so he makes ways of escape. He's continually trying to guide us by the Holy Spirit out of temptation. If only we would stop and listen and heed the warning of the Lord. You might ask, what was David thinking? Why would he lay with this woman? Okay, the answer is simple. He wasn't thinking. When you're doing something that's immoral, you're not trying to think rightly. You're thinking wrongly. You're, you're not thinking at all. I mean, that's what happens is one sin leads to another, to another, to another. And, and, and in Romans chapter 1, Paul says it leaves you with a depraved mind. You're unable to recognize right from wrong anymore. We have people today like that. They're calling out sin as if it's right and calling out righteousness as if it's sin because they have a debased mind. They're depraved completely. And this is what happened to David in that moment. David's not thinking right. And why would you want to think right? To think right would mean that you would, you would not be able to fulfill your your fleshly desires. And so David's following through, simply going like a mindless idiot into a sinful situation with a woman he doesn't even know. He obviously didn't think through this indiscretion. If he had thought through it, he would realize the cost was too great. You say, well, what's the cost? Well, let me tell you. Because of David's indiscretions from 20 years earlier all the way up to now, all of the sexual lust and fulfillment of sexual sin, listen, there was an unwanted pregnancy, the murder of a trusted friend of David's, the, David had a dead son because of it, his daughter was raped by another son, one son murdered by another son, I mean, it goes on. A civil war was led by one of his sons that rose up against him. A son who imitates David's lack of self-control, leading him and much of Israel away from God. All of these things. See, sin gives birth, and then 
It grows until it brings destruction. And that's exactly what David faced. Far too many children in this country every night go to bed with no daddy in the home. Far too many kids. Why? Because the fathers are not being discreet. The fathers are not taking on the responsibility that God has given them to raise their children in the Lord. The fathers are fulfilling fleshly desire, leaving their wives, having other women, mistresses, getting married again and again. Fathers are causing great harm. You look at our nation now and what's happening, and you can look at men and women who have totally rejected God's plan for family. They've rejected the covenant that God's established for marriage, one woman and one man for life. They've rejected it. They laugh at it. They ridicule it. They mock it. And because of it, our nation is suffering greatly today. This is a great word here that comes to us from God's word in chapter 11. I want to stop right there tonight. I'm going to wait. We'll continue next week as we look even closer at Bathsheba and David's relationship and the fallout that comes because of it. So let me close our time with prayer. And I want to thank you tonight for being with us. I pray that you will consider what the Bible's teaching us about looking for the way of escape. You can't help it when you're tempted. Everybody gets tempted every day. Temptation itself is not the sin. It's when we give in to the temptation. But God has a way of escape. Take it. Set up the boundaries in your life. Cut sin off at the neck. Set up boundaries so that you never put yourself in a situation. Let me say this to you. It's interesting. If you think about it, Joseph in the Old Testament had a far greater temptation than David had with Bathsheba. David's looking at Bathsheba from a distance. Joseph, he's in the house of Potiphar's wife, and she is making a move, grabbing hold of his garment. The one man from a distance moves towards the sin. A man in the presence of of sinfulness, of temptation to sin, flees immediately. The Bible tells us throughout that we should stand against the enemy, that we should stand for God when we are facing temptation. But there's one type of temptation that the Bible says, do not try to stand. It actually says, flee the presence of evil, sexual evil, flee get out. Don't think you're strong enough. You are not. Make sure that you do that for the sake of God, for the sake of his church, for the sake of your children, for the sake of your spouse. Follow God. Father, tonight, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for showing us by your word how much you love us, that you would give us the, these insights and these principles that we might live a life that honors you, that glorifies you and brings great greatness to your name, that we would live in such a way that we have a witness with lost people. 
If we are caught up in sexual sin, if we're giving into temptations every day, we have no witness. Our witness is ruined. And so, Lord, I pray that we would turn back to you, that we would seek your face. You, you, look, you, you've already covered all of our sins. Thank you, God, that you have saved us. Our, our, our salvation is not in jeopardy, but, Lord, our witness is. And so, Father, I pray that we would be able to return to you and fulfill the works that you prepared beforehand, that we would walk in them. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you.